0: So if you haven't already, turn in your Bibles to 1 Peter chapter one. As I mentioned earlier, we're continuing our series through the letter of 1 Peter. And today, we will look at 1 Peter 1, 13 through 21. As you're finding the passage, I want you to imagine for a moment that you were adopted by Sheikh Zayed bin Sultan al Nahyan, the founder of the UAE. And imagine that when you were 10 years old, the Sheikh sat you down to tell you the story of your adoption and what it means. He tells you to your surprise that he had to give a great deal of his wealth just to adopt you. And as you're still stunned by this, he takes you to the top of the Burj Khalifa and has you look out over the UAE, seeing all that has been built up and accumulated since then he describes to you the magnitude of his estate. And he says that everything will be your inheritance. His estate, the honor of Sheik, all of it yours one day. Then he sits you down to tell you that this estate and this honor comes with a great responsibility to live according to its value. And he encourages you to follow his example and to always be mindful of what he did to adopt you and what lies ahead when you're tempted to not live according to this responsibility. You see, this is essentially what Peter is going to communicate to us in our passage today. Only the one who adopted you, the price that was paid, and the inheritance that you will receive are far greater than our imagined story. In fact, as we'll see, our story doesn't even scratch the surface of illustrating these realities. Let's start by reading our passage together. 1 Peter 1, 13 through 21. Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded... He who was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and your hope are in God. Now, if you were with us last week and you remember, we covered verses 10 through 13. And Pastor Steve showed how those are connected. I'm including verse 13 again because it's connected to verses 14 through 21 as well. Notice what Peter says at the end of verse 13. He says, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And then notice how he ends in verse 21. You are believers in God so that your faith and hope are in God. Hope bookends these verses. This tells us that everything we saw last week about how our thinking in regards to our hope in the grace to come at the revelation of Jesus Christ is connected to what Peter says in verses 14 through 21. So think about everything that you remember from last week and bring that to the table as we study our passage this week. Because we're going to see why as we move through this passage. Peter begins by showing us the truth of our identity. We see this right away as he states our identity at the beginning of verse 14, "As obedient children." Now let me just say I think there's great value in our Bible study in pausing and thinking through how a phrase is composed. It's apparent in our translation, but more so in the Greek. The construction of this phrase is used to point to the quality of something. So you see what Peter's saying? He's saying, You are obedient children, and as obedient children, you should. We are obedient children. He's declaring that as our identity. How can he say this with confidence? Well, do you remember what he said at the beginning of this letter in verses 1 and 2? He said this letter is written to those who are elect exiles according to the foreknowledge of God the Father in the sanctification of the Spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ. You see, if you are in Christ, God has chosen you and sanctified you for obedience as his children. Peter points to this identity again just to make sure we get it in verse 17, but he does it in a different way. At the beginning of that verse, he says, and you call on him as, if you call on him as father. You see what he's saying? If you cry out to God as father, you're confessing that you're his child. Church, you are God's children. He has sanctified you by his spirit for obedience. Our identity is one of privilege, responsibility, and great security. This is like the Queen of England telling her children, you must always remember who you are. And as we'll see throughout the letter of 1 Peter, Peter wants us to be sure of the truth of our identity. He wants you to be sure that you are children of God, that you have been born again, that you are something new. Then after helping us see this, he moves to the thrust of this section. The demands... Of our identity. You see, Peter shows us the truth of our identity to highlight the demands of our identity. He gives three commands in these eight verses. We see them in verse 14, verse 15, and verse 17. So let's look at these together. Look at verse 14 again. As obedient children, Do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. The first demand of our identity is to not be conformed to our former lusts. Peter means don't be molded to or bonded to the way of your old life. And did you notice what he says these passions are connected to? Our former ignorance. Ignorance of what? Well, in the context of 1 Peter 1, ignorance of what God has caused us to be born again to, the hope of the grace to come. Ignorance of the gospel, ignorance of the value of the glory of Jesus Christ. You see, what he's saying is that all of the passions of our flesh are ultimately completely ignorant of hope, void of hope. In verse 18, Peter says that we have been ransomed from what? Our futile ways. Ways that are aimless. Ways that are hopeless. So he's saying, don't be conformed to the passions of your flesh, which promise joy but will never satisfy. Then we see that the next command is connected to this one by way of contrast back up to the beginning of verse 14, as obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. Now notice the word but at the beginning of verse 15. But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. So the contrast of being conformed to our passions is to be holy as God is holy. Don't be conformed. To your old way of life, but imitate or be conformed to God's holiness because, as he said in verse 16, God says to his people, you shall be holy for I am holy. Now, when we're studying the scriptures, we need to ask ourselves, what does it mean to be holy? It's a word that we use often in the Christian church. Do we know what it means, though? We should first see here that the word holy encompasses who God is. God is holy. He says that in verse 16. I am holy. Holy means to be set apart, to be pure, separated, or consecrated. You see, God is perfectly holy, perfectly set apart in his love. Holy in his justice, holy in his mercy, holy in his righteousness, and holy in his purity and perfection. He is completely separate from all other things in this world, in everything that he does and in who he is. So to be holy in all of our conduct means we are holy in our love. We are holy. In our anger, holy in our speech, holy in our pursuits, holy in our obedience to authorities, holy in our treatment of others, holy in our response to persecution. These are all things that Peter is going to tell us to do in the coming weeks. And he wants us to do these things in a way that is completely separate, completely pure from the world. So our conduct should be marked by holiness. It should be marked by a separation from the world like God is marked by a separation from the world. It should be marked by love and justice and mercy and righteousness in the same way God is marked by those things. Now we're not, and we will not be perfect on this side of heaven. We will never be as God is. But Peter is calling us to seek to imitate God in his holiness and to abstain from the sins that marked our ignorance of his holiness, of the hope that we have of one day being completely pure. An illustration that might help us understand this is of an animal called the ermine, which lives in Northern Europe and Asia. And it's known for its beautiful white fur in the winter. The ermine goes to great lengths to protect its white coat from anything that might soil it. So much so that the way hunters catch it is by smearing the entrance and the interior of its home with grime. So that when they let their dogs loose to chase this ermine and he's running back to hide in his home, he stops at the door and refuses to go in so that he won't soil his coat. It would rather be captured to preserve its coat's purity. It's kind of like the family heirloom or the China dishes that we all have and we want to protect to keep their purity in life. You see, Peter's saying, treat your conduct in in this manner. Treat your holiness in this manner. Don't be conformed to your own passions but be holy as God is holy. Then the final command that we see is in verse 17. Conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile. Again, we can notice a link because of the word and at the beginning of verse 17 and the repetition of the idea of conduct or behavior. You see, this is the mindset behind the action. We seek holiness in all of our conduct as we are conducting ourselves in fear. We are conducting ourselves in fear by being holy. So, Peter is ultimately saying the demands of our identity is to be holy in fear during the time of your exile. So, what does it mean to conduct ourselves in fear? I thought the Bible says we have nothing to fear. 1 John 4 says perfect love casts out all fear. But yet the word of God right now is commanding us to fear. How do we balance these things? This brings me to the final point. You see, in order to understand what Peter means by being holy in fear during the time of our exile we need to see the motivation he gives for obedience to these commands. Now let's first remind ourselves that this begins with a response to who God is. In verse 15, we saw that God is holy. Therefore, for us to be holy, we have to first think on how he is holy. Truthfully, we could spend the next hours talking about that alone. But Peter also supplies us with two more motivations in verse 17 and verses 18 through 21, which help us to see his point here. Look at verse 17. The first motivation is that the one we call on as father is perfect in his judgment. Look at what Peter says. And if you call on him as father, Who judges impartially according to each one's deeds. And you can insert, then conduct yourselves in fear. Now we can know that he's not trying to say here that our salvation is determined by our deeds. And we can know that just by looking at verses 18 through 21, which we'll cover in a minute. Our redemption, our salvation, is accomplished only through the blood of Jesus Christ. Our deeds cannot and will not save us. So, what is Peter trying to say then by giving the motivation of the fact that God judges impartially according to each one's deeds? There are really two thoughts on what this may mean. The first is stated well by an author named F.B. Meyer who says it this way. He says, God's children are to be judged, not at the great white throne, but at the judgment seat of Christ. That judgment will not decide our eternal destiny because that has been settled before, but it will settle the rewards of our faithfulness or otherwise. So what he's saying is Peter could be referring to the rewards that we'll receive for the deeds that we do in this life. Well, I think that's possible. I think he's more likely referring to God's perfect judgment of all of humanity. And he's referring to how those in Christ have deeds consistent with their faith. You see, James 2.17 says, faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. Meaning it's not really faith. Galatians 5.21 warns us that those who continue in sin will be excluded from the kingdom of heaven. Hebrews twelve fourteen says, strive for peace with everyone, and listen to this, and for holiness without which no one will see the Lord. I could go on. And none of these scriptures mean that our deeds save us. What they mean is that holiness and deeds happen in accord with our faith. They are consistent to the faith that we have. If we have faith, true faith in Jesus Christ, we will have deeds. And God will be honored as he judges at the judgment seat. Remember, Peter said we are elect, we are chosen for obedience to Jesus Christ. So what Peter is saying is, if God judges all deeds impartially... If you know this to be true, and if you call on Him for salvation, you will fear not honoring the holy and righteous judge, and you will have deeds consistent with your faith. You see what that fear is? It's a fear that God will not be glorified, it's a fear that God will not be honored for who He is, and it motivates us towards obedience. I think this is confirmed as we see the second motivation in verses 18 through 21. Look at the beginning of verse 18 when we get there. Start at the the command. Conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile, knowing that you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Jesus Christ like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. I thought knowing that we were ransomed by Jesus' blood removes our fear. But Peter's saying that it motivates our fear. Oh, church, if this was the only motivation that Peter gave, it would take a lifetime to truly soak it in. Think about it. We have been ransomed. We have been purchased. We have been redeemed by the blood of Jesus. Let that sink into your heart. The blood of Jesus Christ was shed for you. And it was shed to ransom you from futile ways that lead to no joy. This is not some measly payment of millions of dirhams. This is not even measly payment of all of the collection of the world's gold and silver. No, none of that compares. It all pales in comparison to what has really happened. The blood of Jesus Christ was shed. Blood of the perfect, spotless Lamb of God. And he's saying that if you know that this has happened, it will cause you con- to conduct yourself in fear. And just in case we don't recognize just what this means, notice what Peter, how Peter reveals the r- amazing reality of who this person is. In verse 20, he was foreknown before the foundation of the world. This shows that Jesus Christ existed before anything else existed. The apostle John in John 1, 1 through 2, puts it this way. Calling him the word says, In the beginning was the word. At the beginning of all of creation was the word. And the word, Jesus Christ, was with God. And the word was God. The one who shed his blood was God. Do you see the value of the preciousness of the blood of Jesus Christ. And Peter continues in verse 20. He says, but he was made manifest in the last times for your sake. Church, God took on flesh. God took on the limitations of our humanity. The creator became the creation. He accepted our frailty He experienced hunger and thirst. He battled temptation. He was ridiculed instead of glorified. He was mocked and held in contempt instead of honored. And he did this for you, for your sake. Oh, the precious blood of Christ. So that you might be called children of God. Do you see now how the story I started with doesn't even pale in comparison? You could take all the wealth of the UAE. Just give me Jesus. He shed his blood for me. What a payment. What a price. Soak that in. Think about it. Do you know that to be true? You see, Peter is saying, knowing, Truly knowing that Christ's blood was shed because of our sin changes everything. In my study, I ran across a story that a pastor named Steve Cole shared of a seminary student he had. And I think it illustrates this well. A seminary student told of how when he was a boy, he fell in love with golf. His parents gave him a club And a harmless wiffle type golf ball, the things that are plastic with the holes in them don't really go anywhere, so he could hit it around in the backyard. But one day, thinking his parents weren't home, he was overcome with the temptation to feel the click of a real golf ball against the club. So he teed it up and he gave it a real hard whack, but the ball was not hit properly and it hooked from its intended flight. And it went directly through one of the windows on the house with a loud crash. Even worse, the crash was followed by a piercing scream. The boy ran for the house, burst into the living room, and to his horror saw his mother standing in front of the broken window with blood streaming down her face. And he cried out, Mother, I could have killed you. His mother hugged him and said reassuringly, It's all right, I'm okay. The seminary student concluded the story by saying, When I saw my mother bleeding, there were some things I could never do again in the backyard. I could never so much as carry a golf club across the lawn of our backyard. The sight of her standing there with blood flowing down blood that I had caused changed my behavior forever. Has the spiritual sight of Jesus shedding his blood changed your behavior forever? Knowing the preciousness of Christ's blood affects the way we view temptation. It affects the way we live And Peter calls this a motivation to be holy in fear. So how does fear relate, though? I hope you see it. You see, I believe what he's saying is that this causes us to desire not to treat it like it doesn't have value. It makes us want to live in such a way that Christ is honored for what he paid the fear that Peter is talking about is that we might somehow devalue the preciousness of Christ's blood, that we might fail to show just how truly awesome it is, what he did. Do you fear not honoring Christ in this way? Does his shed shed blood motivate your obedience? So now we can see that Both motivations are similar. If we want to be holy in fear, we do so because not being holy fails to honor God as a perfect judge. And it fails to show the world the value of Christ's atoning work on the cross. And we don't want to devalue that. We want to honor God. There's so much more that we could say about this passage. But time won't allow. Peter is calling for us to live in a way that shows the world the hope that we have by being holy in fear of not honoring and glorifying God while we live on this earth. Now, we have the motivations, we have the commands. I think part of what we always ask is, how do we practically move forward with this? I hope you've seen the great truth that Peter has been showing us on how to live the Christian life. Let me sum up verses 13 through 21 to see if I can show this truth. As children of God, preparing your minds to think rightly, dwell on the realities of your living hope, the holy perfection of God and the costly price that was paid to redeem you so that you will be holy in all of your conduct, glorifying God as your heart is set on the hope of a grace coming at the revelation of Jesus Christ. You see, the truth Peter is showing us is that our thinking affects our hearts And our hearts affect our actions. Do you want your actions to change? You need to change your heart. Do you want your heart to change? You need to focus your thinking on the right things. This is why we're committed to continue to learn how to study God's word in our home groups. You see, we want to think rightly. Rightly on what God has done, on the hope that we have ahead of us, on what he calls for us to do. So it will spur on our hearts to hope in the glory to come, which will bleed out in our actions that glorify God. And today, we get to conclude our service by focusing our minds in a unique way on the preciousness of Christ blood shed for us because today we take communion. Communion is a time of remembrance and proclamation proclaiming to our hearts and to others around us Christ's death until he comes. It's a physical representation of the price that was paid to redeem us as the bread represents Christ's body broken, and bruised for us, and the cup, his precious blood that was shed. It's an avenue to think rightly on that precious blood, in order to encourage our hearts to hope and effect in us obedience to holiness. I'm going to invite the worship team up. They're going to lead us in a song of remembrance. During this song, we invite you to come to each side of the speakers and grab the bread and the juice while you think on these things. The bread is gluten-free, wheat-free, and dairy-free. I think that covers everything. This is an act. It's an act commanded to be observed. Jesus says, do this in remembrance of me. But it's an act for those who believe. It's an act for those who have faith in Jesus Christ's work on the cross. If you don't, think back to what we just detailed. God became flesh. God became humanity. Lived a perfect life. Suffered ridicule, torture, and death. God shed his blood to make a way to be reconciled. If you've never heard that before, hear it today for the first time in your heart and respond in trusting that work. He was raised to new life and he will come again and there is hope, there is hope that's set before all who believe. After the song is finished, We're going to take these elements together knowing that we were ransomed with the precious blood of Christ. Please come grab the elements as you're ready. I want to end just with three verses of an old hymn by Joseph Hart called Dearly We're Bought. Come, raise your thankful voice, ye souls redeemed with blood. Leave earth and all its toys and mix no more with mud. Dearly we're bought, highly esteemed, redeemed with Jesus' blood, redeemed. With heart and soul and mind, exalt redeeming love. Leave worldly cares behind and set your minds above. Dearly we're bought, highly esteemed, redeemed with Jesus' blood, redeemed. Be to this world as dead. Alive to that to come. Our life in Christ is hid, who soon shall call us home. Dearly we're bought, highly esteemed, redeemed with Jesus' blood. Redeemed. Let's think on the blood of Jesus as this song is being played.